0: Uh, this is, and uh, I, I didn't even ask Ashley uh, before I started, so uh, she may correct me on some of this, but about 10 years ago, uh, this is right before we, we had children, Ashley and I are in Walmart, uh, which is where kind of the craziest stories tend to happen anyway. I don't know, like there's a whole like website of like the people of Walmart. Anyway, long, long, long digression there, but uh, I'm, we, we finished shopping and, and we're checking out and uh, as the man, it's my duty to swipe the card, even though it's out of the the same account, so I'm always the one who, like, as the, as it ends, I'm I'm there at the account, and and a, a woman has noticed Ashley. She was walking by, and Ashley was kind of standing next to me, uh, and and contextually, this is going to matter. But she was about four foot nine, little Vietnamese woman, and she sees Ashley, and she says, "Oh, hey, Ashley!" And so Ashley steps away to to talk to her, and I'm I'm talking to the clerk, and I'm swiping the card, I'm doing I'm doing all this, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this whole scene play out, uh, where where uh, Ashley and this lady. Are are facing each, other. but for the record, if you don't know, Ashley is my, my wife. Uh, like half of you know who I'm talking about. Half of you are like, this is some random person. Uh, and so Ashley and this woman are talking to each other, and uh, Ashley kind of takes a step backwards, uh, and this woman takes a step forwards and continues the conversation. And you know, after a few seconds of that, it's maybe a little uncomfortable. Ashley takes another step backwards, and this woman takes another step forward, and this this played out for about two or three minutes of of it was just like a step back. And if if you were to take the security footage of that day and just kind of. Watching it fast forward, it looks like uh, my wife is being chased by a very short Vietnamese woman in reverse. Like it's just it's just one step backwards, one step forward. Uh, and and lucky for for her, I knew that my wife wasn't in any danger. It was a, a friend. I think I think uh, they know. I don't know where they knew each other from. But uh, lucky for her, I'd taken a couple of psychology classes, and it turns out that different cultures have different comfort levels with distances away from each other. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, if you if you are around uh, very Homogenous, same looking like you culture, you, you think that everybody's distance is about the same as yours, your comfort level. But if you get around other cultures, if you get around other people from different parts of the world, it turns out that they're really comfortable having a conversation much closer than, than you are. In general, this is this is a broad overstatement, but in general, the the wider the culture, the farther the distance of where that comfort level is. You have this bubble that you're you feel safe in. Uh, and if you are like Dutch or something, you're bubble is a good six feet. Like you're just standing across the stage and you're having a conversation. But but in, in other cultures, they can be closer. They can be three feet. They can, they can be just four feet. And, and for you to step away from that is to make them uncomfortable. And so what had happened with Ashley is that there was this cultural misunderstanding. Nobody was angry about it, but I could easily see someone being offended in this moment of, listen, I'm, I'm wanting to have a real friendly conversation with you. Ashley's like, you're in my bubble. But I'm wanting to have a real friendly conversation. I'm, my bubble's over here. And she just chased her around Walmart for a while. Uh, we, we have, we have v- uh, amazingly different and broad cultures, uh, not the least of which is known through languages. And, and there's so many differences. There's so much, so much flavor in the people of God that uh, when, when we're aware of it, it's interesting. When we're not aware of it, we stumble. And we put our foot in our mouth. What we want to do today is we want to look at, okay, why do we have all of these different cultures why are the all these different languages? Uh, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel in a moment, which is a very small passage. Actually, it's only like eleven verses, uh, so we may get out in time for lunch. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's this real pivotal moment in the Book of Genesis about where all these languages and, and cultures came from. Uh, so, if you're going to follow along in your Bible, I always recommend that you do. We're going to be in Genesis chapter eleven uh, for for the beginning of our time. What we're wanting to do as a church, and we're going to spend uh, probably one, maybe two more weeks on this, uh, is that we're looking at first things in the Bible, because when we understand the first things of the Bible, the rest of the story makes a ton more sense. When when we understand why there are languages and differences in culture, then we understand why God is so intent on bringing people from all the different cultures back to the church. The church is a, bar- a barrierless, I should have worked on that word before, a, a barrier-free zone where there's no... There's there's no slave nor Jew. There's no Greek nor nor Roman. Uh, those are the same, more or less. Uh, there, there's no male nor female. All the barriers break down in the church. Well, why do we have the barriers to begin with? So we want to we want to get first things first, so that we understand the middle parts of the story. So we're going to look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Uh, just to set this up, uh, Babel is in an area that, in this part of the Bible, is called Shinar, um, but it's a region uh, of Mesopotamia that later becomes Babylon. That's where it starts with Babel and then Babylon comes from it. So if you know a little bit of your uh, Old Testament, you know like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know Daniel, they go to Babylon. Uh, so the, the the culture of Babylon is from beginning to end. Uh, today uh, this region is modern-day Iraq, which is really interesting uh, because after uh, the fall of Saddam Hussein when, when like Western cultures kind of went in there, they, they discovered that Saddam Hussein was not ignorant, that the Tower of Babel and Babylon was in his home territory. Uh, there's a lot of coinage that Saddam Hussein made. You can Google this if you want, uh, where it would be his face and then King Nebuchadnezzar's face kind of looking at each other. There are inscriptions and, and uh, uh, carvings that he put on, on walls where uh, it would be like the Tower of Babel and then like Saddam Hussein's face like hovering over the Tower of Babel. He, he wanted to rebuild the glory of Babylon uh, in modern day uh, and, and create... Uh, what but he would say it's like a tour touristy area you could go like tour the ruins of the tower of babel let's let's look at it um, together genesis 11 uh starting in verse 1 it so says, now, the whole earth had one language and the same word. So all the people, uh, they all spoke the same thing. There was no misunderstandings. Culturally, people were, were more or less the same. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar Shinar, uh, and settled there. So they kind of get to modern-day Iraq, and they're like, eh, we're going to set up camp. We're going to build some stuff here. Uh, and they said to one another... Verse three, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So uh, in general, this is like civilization starting to get a little bit of technology. Like, hey, I have this great idea. What if, what if we take some mud? Uh-huh. I'm listening. I'm following you. And we make a, like a square out of it. Okay. this weird. We're going to make a building block. Yeah. Mud's not a building block, but watch this. If you cook it, turns into like a rock-hard stone. Uh, Civilization uh, began, uh, if you you Google this, check out uh, like uh, Wikipedia, check out any encyclopedia you have. Where is the beginning of human civilization? They put it in Mesopotamia. They put it in Babylon. What was the beginning of civilization? It was technology. It was the ability to uh, have agriculture and the ability to build buildings. What's interesting about that place is that there's not really great stones for you to just carve stones out of to make a building. But if you can build, an artificial stone, say a brick. This is, this is like 21st century technology to them. They might as well be going to the moon. They made a rock out of mud, and then they cooked it. And so now they have they have this brick, and they use uh, that bitumen. I, I did some research. Basically, they use for mortar, they use like asphalt. So they have really strong building materials, but so far, nothing nothing too bad is happening. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now, if you are coming to this passage, you're like, okay, I've never read the Bible and I want to read Tower of Babel first. This sounds like the most vanilla statement ever. Uh, this is just some people like, you know what? We want to build a great big building. We want to build a, a great city. We look at this in modern day eyes and we're like, well, we do that today. We have like New York and we have, we have uh, you know, this is the largest bridge in all of Texas, something like that. We get really proud of how big our things are. So we read this and we think, well, I don't understand why there's judgment later. I don't, I don't know what's, what's happening. Well, first, uh, what we need to see is that this is in context of all of Genesis. And so when it says, let's build ourselves a city and a tower, that is one, a rebellion against God's plan. God's plan was that you would represent God in all this. We are made in the image of God as image bearers of God. We are to represent his dominion. But the first thing that these people thought as they Invented a brick. It's let us build ourselves a building. Let's build ourselves a tower and a city. Um, and, and it says, uh, "With us, top in the heavens." So we want to get up there where God is, and we can be like God if we can build it high enough. And let us make a name for ourselves. So it's not. It's not about God. It's not about what God wants in His creation. It's. It's. It's all us. 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 What we have is the first civilization is very uh, humanistic, very, very self centered. Uh, I'm sure that that none of us uh just finished a week with some some self-centered narcissistic people around the table all of us had completely altruistic great meals with families yes is that true I have a couple of annoying eye rolls, and I won't look at the fingers being pointed. But anyway, we understand that people can become narcissistic and self-centered. What we have, the beginning of the problem with the Tower of Babel is that the people are self-centered and narcissistic. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to build their self up into heaven. And then it says, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you are reading this in a Genesis context, if you've been in church with us for the last few weeks— That should be like a big you know, exclamation point. That's a big red flag. God has uh, ordained all the way back to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Then Cain and Abel, and after God handles that, and to to Seth and the people, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Noah uh, gets off of the boat, and the first thing God says is be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I want you to go everywhere. I want you to be dispersed. And the plan of these people is like, I know that's what God wants, but I don't want to be dispersed. Let's all just be right here in this one spot, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Uh, I I read uh, one commentary about this. And it's kind of like a jab at the Tower of Babel. It's a jab at the people. that They've built this amazing tower. It's supposed to be all the way up in the heavens so that they could climb up there and they could get eye to eye with God. They can be with God. And yet when God decides to come look at it, he has to, he has to come down out of heaven. It's like it's not even close. You know. Yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little uh, sarcastic jab that God is going to come down he's going to look at it. And it says this, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. That's not bad. Uh, and they have all one language. That's not bad. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. It depends on what they're doing, but that by itself isn't bad. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What God sees is that when the people have one language, one culture, they can accomplish, if you have unity, you can accomplish anything that you set your mind to. There's no there's no in-house strife. There's no There's no conflicts. That is a great thing for the church. When Paul talks about, you know, we're, gonna, we're to fight for unity. We're supposed to have, uh, no strife, no enmity in our people. It's so that we can accomplish more than we could without it. The problem here is that they're not choosing to worship God. They're not choosing to, to do anything holy. Uh, they have this very self-centered goal to ignore God's command. And so, verse seven come. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God's answer to this is to create chaos. Now this is interesting because uh, up until the flood, God has been a God that rushes towards chaos and puts order there. He rushes towards chaos and he puts purpose. He rushes towards chaos and he says, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to create something that ne- ne- has never been before. But with the flood, it's like a decreation moment. I'm just going to, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. And now with languages, it's God's going to use, uh, the confusion of the language to accomplish his purposes. His purposes ultimately are that they would be obedient to him. And so he calls this confusion in their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So, verse eight, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. They didn't even finish what, what they were doing. A uh, little, little biblical, uh, uh, nugget right here. Um, God commanded them, to be dispersed and fill the earth. They chose in their hearts, I'm not going to obey what God wants. I'm going to do it my way. And then God, through the use of judgment, in this case, the confusing of languages, accomplishes what he wants to accomplish anyway. So interesting, uh, all the way through the Bible, either you humble yourself to the will of God, Or he will humble you to do his will. One way or another, God's going to accomplish his purposes. They could have accomplished it with unity and precision. We are one people and we're going to worship God exactly how he asked with all agreement. But instead, they were in agreement to be rebellious towards God. But God accomplishes his disbursement anyway. Therefore, verse nine, uh, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord or excuse me from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. He is going to accomplish whatever he wants, like I said at the beginning, uh, if you research like where's the first civilization it's here it's Mesopotamia, right in the center. Where did all other civilizations come out of? It came from here and Moses, the author of Genesis, before he understood all of the history, before he could understand like we're going to be able to Google this and fact check him, he says in that last verse, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It's in agreement with what our history says. the way language affects uh, our ability to agree with one another to to, to see reality, uh it, it it is it is a fascinating little bit. Not all words are easy to translate. Like you and I live in a world where you can go buy a Google earbud, you can put it in your ear, get a Google Translate app, and you can let someone speak in their language, and it will translate in your head. And so we think like, oh, it's just language. Like you can you can translate this on the fly. There are some words uh that are notoriously difficult to translate. And I just, if we can just have a little cultural moment, these may be helpful for you as you navigate post holidays into Christmas. Words that we don't have English words for, but they would be really, really good to know. Uh, the first one is a German word. Uh, it is, uh, forgive me on my pronunciation, uh, but you could try it if you like. Uh, Maybe fun at home later. It's uh, Bach, Bach Pfeifengeist. Say it with me Bach Pfeifengeist. I can't believe you said that. You guys are, golly, who knows what you said. No, this this word is a German word, that ha, which Germans have amazing words for all kinds of things. But this is a word for a face that is badly in need of a fist. That is literally what it means. We don't have an English translation for that, but it's just like, you're looking at a guy and it's just like, you know what your face needs? Just not a little makeup, but you need a little fist right there. It's a very violent word. It sounds violent. Like if you say something in German with a good German accent, beck uh, you 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 have insulted someone. Um, I, I hope you didn't need that uh, this this week. Uh, the next word is French. I tried to. I, I can't pronounce French very well, but it's uh, "chanté en yot." Chantez en yacht. Somebody else may be able to help me with this. Uh, this is, uh, what I do, uh, because I can't remember the lyrics to anything. This word or phrase means to sing made up words or sounds when you don't know the lyrics to a song. Anybody else have a bad case of chantez en yacht? Yes, yes, you're so cultured. Who knew that there was a phrase for that? Why is the musician raising his hand to that? <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's that's encouraging actually to me. That that I don't know. Chantez en uh to just sing made up words. Right, the next is a, is another German word. It is uh, shot scha, This is the feeling. Of joy or pleasure when one sees another fail or suffer misfortune, you know that moment where you're watching like uh, funniest family videos or whatever the name of that show is, or you're watching uh, like YouTube and the guy like wrecks his bike, but it's the most spectacular wreck you've ever seen, and you're just like giddy, like you're giggling. He had ER medical bills, and you're giggling about it, and you're just so excited. It turns out the word for that is Schadenfreude. If you are rooting for, uh, you know, a team, uh, I, was, I was watching the Cowboys game the other day and someone was explaining to me like what the division is, I, w- I haven't been keeping up with it. And they said, what we need, what we need is Philadelphia to lose some games. Like that's very important right now for the Cowboy fans. We need Philadelphia to lose some games. And so if you're watching the Philadelphia game and you're cheering for them to lose, like they fumbled the ball. You're like so overwhelmed with joy. That sucker just lost millions of dollars, but you have joy. You have schadenfreude that this language. If you have a good word for a thing, like you can, you can describe it. I'll give you one more, last one. Uh, This is Dutch. Anybody, uh, you have a birthday coming up in the next month or so? Like it's going to be your party? Nobody? Maybe one or two? Okay. Nobody wants to play along. That's fine. You can play at home later. Uh, The Dutch have a word for the person who is the, the honor, the person of honor at the party, and it's pronounced "feestvarken," "feestvarken," which literally translates to "party pig." Okay. Could you imagine? Like, you, you're going to your mom's birthday party, and you're like, Mom, you are the Feast of Arken. No, you would never call your mom the party pig, but if you are Dutch, and if you're from Nederland, you should probably know some Dutch, so there you go. Uh, you're the Feast of Arken. You're the, you're the party pig. We, we've, we've developed all these cultures. We don't have words for this in English, and we've developed all of these cultures to accomplish and to look at the world in, in very specific ways, and, and to, to maybe, maybe like, uh, get us scenario worked out or uh, celebrate a person. But but English also has some notoriously difficult to translate phrases and idioms. And they're so normal. If you're an English speaker, if you're a native English speaker, these just seem so basic to you. But but if you Google these phrases, these idioms, uh, these are phrases that they're trying to teach uh, non-native English speakers like, hey, listen, don't freak out. It's not as bad as it sounds. Uh, We have have a, a phrase like, hold your horses right? We know what hold your horses mean. Could you imagine like you're just approaching English for the first time and you're about to run out the door and and someone yells at you, hey, hold your horses. And you're like, I don't have a horse. (laughs) I don't don't know what that means. I don't know. We're just saying slow down. You know, that's a really old phrase. It turns out uh, when when I was researching this, that that was all the way back in Homer's Iliad, the phrase hold your horses. Very, very old. Uh, Hold, hold your horses. We have another one. Maybe, maybe you had this during uh, Thanksgiving break. There's, there's this thing that happened in the family that every time you talk about it, it causes a problem, and so you decide not to talk about it. We might call that thing. It's everybody knows it's there, uh, but we're not going to talk about it. We call that, anybody know? It's the elephant in the room. How weird is that? If you're not an English speaker, you're like, hey, uh, all right, we, we need to have a meeting. Oh, what's, what's going on? Well, we just need to talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> what? That's such a strange phrase in, in English. I'll give you one more, uh, just, just for the sake of, of landing this is if you are, um, if you if you're stressed, you've got a lot on your plate, and let's say you, you've gone to the store uh and you you, you left your to do list, and so you're just you're running around everywhere, and it's kind of chaotic. You're kind of bouncing around from place to place, and you, you're you're losing your train of thought. You, you go to grab this thing, and you forgot why you went over there, and so you go over here, you get this thing, and you say there's this phrase for that feeling of just chaos running around, bouncing around, and that phrase is. Yeah, nobody wants to say because how violent it is. I'm running around like a chicken with his head cut off. You, can it get any more violent in English? You know, like what it, why, why would we have that? Because, because we have to have language for our experiences and every culture has different experiences and different words kind of stick. Uh, in 2007 there was a study on how language affects perception, how language affects our ability to see the world. Not, not that it changes the world, but our ability to see the world. And it turns out in Russian, the language, Russian, uh, there are a ton of different words for the color blue. Uh, Not so much in English, there's blue. We have light blue, we have dark blue, we have blue. We have sky blue which is just used as another word but it's all blue right uh russian has multiple words for the shades of blue however in russian there's not a ton of words for the color red uh whereas in english we have red we have uh burgundy we have uh rose we have uh just a ton of words for the color red and so they took native english speakers and native russian speakers and they did this test and they would throw up shades of colors and they say uh, uh tell us which one of these is different which one's the same and and they they would just, It was like a speed test. Boom, 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 boom. And inevitably, the English speakers who don't have a ton of words for blue, they would see blue and they were like, they're the same. They're the same. Uh, but then when you show them different shades of red, they're like, ah, oh, boom, boom. And they were very accurate and very clear about which ones were different. They gave the Russian speakers the same test. The Russian speakers, they could n- see all the nuance of the color blue, all the different things thumbnails of the color blue are different, but you show them different shades of red, like, this is just red, it's it's, it's red. And the conclusion at the end of the study is that while language doesn't change reality, doesn't change experiences, language bends our perception of what those experiences are. Now, that's Just what the study proved is that if you have a language that has more colors for blue, you perceive more shades of blue in the world. If you have a language for more shades of joy, then you will see more joy in the world. If you have a language for more shades of guilt and shame, you will see more guilt and shame in the world. The experience is the same, but the languages change everything about how you perceive it. But you already knew that. You already knew that your pessimistic friend and your optimistic friend, the one who sees the glass half full and the one who sees the glass half empty, you already knew by the way that they speak, when they enter into a circumstance and they come out, some of them are just as beat down. They're like, I knew it was going to happen. I knew that the truck was going to break down. I knew I was going to get a flat. Oh, just one more thing, right? Of course, next week, you know what they're going to have? Another thing to complain about because their language has lent them to perceive the world in that way. But your optimistic friend, who's like, you know what, yeah, man, it's just a truck. It's fine. You know, I, I can change flats. I can do this. I can. Uh, I can get another job. I can. I, we'll. We'll figure out a way to make it work. You know that the next week that you talk to them, it's like, hey, things. Things are better. You can have two people enter into basically the same circumstance, but because of their language and because of their culture, they could come out of it with two very different perceptions. Um, and you already knew that. And what we see in Scripture is that language is being used, at least in the Tower of Babel, to separate and to divide, and it has a divisive effect when we don't share the same language. But God has this desire to bring all language back to himself. And so this was the beginning of the Old Testament. If if you will fast forward uh to Zephaniah, and I'm not making that up, that is in the Bible. Uh, you don't have to know where it is. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind you. But Zephaniah 3 is a, a little known prophet. It's a, what we call one of the minor prophets. And uh, it's after uh, the captivity in Babylon. So this is thousands of years later, so roughly 2,000 years later, actually. Um, and, and the people are, are getting ready to go back into the land. And the, the Zephaniah, the prophet, is talking about what God is about to accomplish. Now, I want you to listen. What God is promising in Zephaniah is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Uh, really, if you want to study this on your own, maybe all of chapter 3, but for the sake of time, I'll just read a few verses. I'll start in verse 9. It says in verse 9, he had just talked about all this judgment. He's talked about all the rebellion the different nations have had as they run away from God. And then he says, starting in verse 9, he says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. Like they were dispersed, but they're going to come back and they're going to have one language. On that day, verse 11, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So you, you, the nations, you've rebelled against me, but you're not gonna be put to shame. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. I'm gonna remove from you the ones who are causing you to rebel, uh, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst the people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What we see in Zephaniah is that the plan of God is that he would bring the people back who were dispersed, all the worshipers of him back, and they would have one shared language. It'll be a purer tongue. Uh, and there will be no shame, there will be no guilt and there there will be no fear they they will not fear one another uh, and they will they will worship him uh, in purity and then, like the Old Testament closes and there 's like five hundred years of that doesn 't happen you know we We live in a world that 's in between two realities that on the one hand there are a thousand reasons for us to not get along, for us to have conflict, for us to have arguments. You see this in marriages. You see this around Thanksgiving tables. You see this um, when you're talking to your siblings. uh, You see this uh, when when parents are talking to kids and kids talking to grandparents, that that there's a thousand things. it's It's like we're speaking different languages why can't we get along? That's one reality. The other reality is that there's a unity for those of us who are in Christ, that we can have a shared language, that people from opposite ends of the world can, can, while we had different life experiences, can all rally around that Jesus is the Christ and He is my King. And we have that in common. We begin with that. I wonder, uh, how many, uh, of these conversation destroyers you, you experienced, uh, this week. Are there there any? Is there any topics around the family table that you just like? You know it's going to be a problem. As soon as so and so comes in, you know it's going to be it's going to be Biden's fault. It's going to be Trump's fault. And you bring up all these politics, like, and you know it. Like, so, so what do you do? You you try to avoid it. You try not to bring it up and then you just say one thing like, oh man, you know, I, I voted for Turkey. I'll tell you who you shouldn't have voted for. And then they named their, their president of choice or something like, and, and, and it's just like politics seems to be this extremely dividing uh, conversation uh, uh, destroyer. Uh, Different people in our families have different priorities and different ethics as they approach the thing and they have different axes to grind. And so they'll come and uh at at one meal, at one at one moment, uh, issues of of racism or pro-life versus pro-choice, like it just comes up and you're just like, why? Why did we do this? It just it just nukes the whole conversation. I'll talk to couples uh and the issue of money and conversation goals uh, they're, they're at odds with each other because they can't agree. Uh, like, Hey, we're having problems. We're arguing over money. This is what we're arguing about. But when you talk to them, what they're really arguing about is what's most important, what this goal, uh, which is getting this four wheeler or this goal, which is retirement, this goal, which is this, or this goal, which is that they're they're It's a issue of conversation. It's an issue of, of language. Uh, there's a, a pastor, uh, you may know the name, Gary Chapman. Uh, he, he would do marriage counseling year after year after year, just thousands of these couples that he had counsel. And he walked away from all of these marriage counseling uh, sessions with this concept that there are basically five love languages. If, if you've ever heard the phrase love languages, it was written by a guy named Gary Chapman. And what he says is this, what he says is that the way that you experience love is one of five ways. And the way that your spouse experiences love may be a different one of the five ways. And very often what he found in marriage counseling is the husband is like, I don't know, like she's just so mad at me. Okay, well, uh, why are you mad at your husband? Uh, well, he, he doesn't tell me that he loves me. And he's like, what are you talking about? I don't tell you that I love you. I mow the grass every week. I go to work. I work 45 hours, 50, 60 hours a week. I provide for this family. And she's like, I just wanted a massage, man. You know, and so what, what he would say is like, they're speaking completely different languages. And so what we have, what we have is this this hope that God will return all language to something pure. And that we would have unity. There would be no more strife. There'd be no more reason to fight. And in that unity, we worship him purely. But we live in this in-between reality that sometimes the language breaks down. What what do we do? What did God do with that? Uh, The last passage I want to ask you to turn to uh, before we close is in Acts chapter 2. It turns out um, God had a plan all along surprise, surprise, and that he begins the undoing of the tower of Babel in Acts chapter two. You probably know this, especially if you grew up in a Pentecostal faith. This is your jam right here this is this is the passage that you love. you know this better than anything this is Acts chapter 2, uh, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Uh, we are now, uh, uh, Pentecost was at 50, 50 days later after Jesus ascending into heaven. Uh, the disciples are gathered together and they're trying to figure out what's going to happen. They're all in a room together. Uh, and here's what happens in, in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven, remember how God had to come down out of heaven to see what the people were doing? Well, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house they were sitting uh, where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is, this is miraculous. They're all speaking a different language all of a sudden as the Spirit gave them utterance. What did that look like? How did it play itself out? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Why do we have all of these nations? Do you remember? Because God gave them all a different language and they spread and they dispersed and they created different nations. And now you have a moment where everybody, all the disciples are speaking different languages, and all of the nations are represented, the, the devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were as freaked out as you would be if, if uh, I don't know, if, if you woke up one morning and you spoke perfect Spanish, and you got to watch all of your novellas, and you're like, I know what they're arguing about. I know, like, assuming you don't speak Spanish before that happened, you would be bewildered. That's a fair way word, uh, just like, ah, oh, that's crazy. It says, verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, but they were, saying, Are not all these who were speaking Galileans uh, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it lists all of these different uh, cultures. Uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Oh, that's, that's funny because that's where the Tower of Babel was. Uh, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia. I'm making some of these pronunciations up. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear Hear them, What do we hear? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. See, the Tower of Babel and the rebellion at Babel is we want to tell others about our mighty works. When God undoes the Tower of Babel and gives them tongues, what do they begin to profess? They begin to profess the mighty works of what God has done. And all were amazed and perplexed. They're like, oh, mind blown, saying to one another, what does this mean? That is a good question. What does this mean? But others mocking said they were filled with new wine. They're drunk. That's what others decided. They decided they've just had too much to drink. It just so happens we understand the, the babbling. See, God, uh, he uses this decreation moment at the Tower of Babel to accomplish his first goal. And that is, I want you to fill the earth. And you're not going to do that. They, they were in open rebellion against God. And God says, no, no, no. You're going to do what I said. Creates chaos separates them, disperses them. They fill the earth. And now at the cross, we see that after Jesus uh, ascends, when the spirit descends at Pentecost, that God undoes the curse of Babel and gives the ability to share a same language and, and to speak. And when they began to speak, they spoke the mighty works of God. And the question is, what does this mean? What does it mean for you to share the faith with a person across the offer? What does it mean for you to share faith with someone from Iraq who is also a follower of Jesus, or the Philippines, or that Vietnamese woman who's going to chase you around Walmart? What does it mean for you to share the same language, the same faith, the same, the same dictionary? It means that you can profess the mighty works of God. A couple of closing thoughts. Um, one from, from that study, obviously, the language— that we know and use, it bends our perception to match the language that we're using. It doesn't change the reality. This isn't a, your words have power to change reality. That's not what this says. This is, whatever your choice language is, is going to bend your perception of what you're going to see. Uh, this is why two people uh, can experience roughly the same events walk away with completely different perspectives. But then we as followers of Jesus, when our words are not just sometimes seasoned, but regularly seasoned with grace and truth, peace, honor, praise, we'll begin to see those things around the world that we observe, and then we'll be able to declare the mighty works of God. When when our words are seasoned that way, we start to see more of it. Why, you may ask the question. I'm a I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesse, and I want to see God do some big things. I, I just feel like I haven't seen Him doing much. Uh, maybe something you look at is like, what? How's your language? What, what kind of things are you choosing to focus on? What kind of things are you choosing to think on? What kind of what kind of things are you talking about all the time? Is it your problems, or is it victory in Jesus? Is it is it their issues and how they're bringing you down, or is it you know what? There are works in progress too. They did a study after. Um, after uh what's a big pandemic we went through covid uh, and and they 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 uh, scoured twitter they used Twitter for this study it's a big multi uh, group study lots of money went into this big names i don't know the names, but they're big trust me and uh, <laughs> they wanted to check the mental health of of people during the pandemic and kind of measure it along the way and the way that they chose to do that. Um, was Twitter. People were tweeting like they're, they're shopping and they're, they're eating and they would just tweet feelings that they has. how Twitter works. And so they took all this Twitter down and they could know where they're from, who they are, and they would use keywords and they would look at the words of people. And what they found is that the first six months of Twitter was uh, the the overwhelming climate was confusion. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. After six months, depression and anxiety started to spike. People starting to worry about jobs, starting to worry about money. The conversation went that way. So you see depression and anxiety spike. And then the next six months, after 12 months of this pandemic, uh, what they saw was a separation at that moment. What they saw is that those who had already begun talking about depression, had depression words like uh, 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 apathy or uh, despair. It was already in their language six months ago. What they saw is that they had a sharp increase all of a sudden in more depression, more anxiety. The the, the conversation began like, I'm going to my therapist. I'm going to see people. I'm going to talk. But the people who didn't have that kind of language, they started to heal after 12 months of the pandemic. They started to have more peace and more happiness. They were going and seeing family again and, and things were happening. And what they saw in the study was that based only on the language people were using in Twitter, they could predict what their next six months were going to look like. I wonder what would happen if we were just to like take the last six months of what you have talked about, what you focused on, uh, what would it predict about the next six months? And what would you be willing to do to change your language, to bend your perception towards that? Uh, I'll close with one of my favorite verses, uh, and that is this: Philippians 4, uh, 8, and 9. It says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable— if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what, what I did, what I talked about, practice these things and the God of peace will what? He'll be with you. Maybe today is the day that we start to catch our words we start to focus on things that are pure and good. There's there's enough good in this world to focus on. There's enough bad in this world to focus on. But whichever one you're choosing to focus on is the one that you're going to see more of. Let me pray uh, for you and then you will be dismissed. Father, uh, we come to you this morning. Um, we thank you for um, the the full arc of, of of what you've done with culture and language. We We want to be a, a people group that declares your mighty works we want to see them first. Please help us to see what you're doing. Give us give us the, the ability to perceive the works that you're doing in, in our families and um, in our marriages. Uh, help us see what you're doing in our community around us. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that, that the focus of despair, the focus on uh, loneliness and hopelessness, Father, that you take that away and give us a language that is seasoned with peace and truth. Uh, Father, we want to we want to represent you well. And uh, Father, may our language, may the, may the things we choose to talk about uh, push others to want to know you, and to, to have a clearer view of who you are. We pray that you'll restore our community um, and that you would do it uh, beginning with with us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.